Welcome ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. That place where nerdy knights gather together to play chess with death and share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. Last time, we explored the theme of escalation by ratcheting up the pace and taking detailed dorky dives into two chapters. Chapter 5, Arithmetic, covering Harry's math lessons, and Chapter 6, The Platinum Blonde Man, covering ill-fated grooming habits, as well as the truth behind what might be keeping Mrs. Wormwood so busy during the week. And I'm new! Hi! I'm Flo, longtime listener, first-time guest host. I'm a first-grade teacher, a big nerd, and I'm so excited to talk with you, Sarah and Will. Yeah, excited to have you. And... And I'm excited to be back, yeah, too. Yeah, we missed yeah. you. So, Absolutely. This is awesome. Welcome, welcome this back, Will. This episode, and for the next two episodes, we will be exploring the theme of Class is Now in Session, where we will be meeting a key teacher, Miss Honey, a key administrator, Miss Trunchbull, and seeing what happens when those worlds collide during an impromptu parent-teacher conference. So we're particularly excited to have Flo with us, who is a teacher and a mom, to walk us through these next chapters. And if you haven't gotten a chance to meet Flo already, listen to our announcement episode where you get to meet her and hear her reader of books story. And with Chapter 7, Miss Honey, we are off to school. Although our Matilda is a few months late starting to school, thanks to her inattentive and uncaring parents, we once again reconfirm what we've been primed to expect, which is that Matilda is leaps and bounds beyond what the average five-and-a-half-year-old can do academically. In a few short pages, Roald Dahl masterfully establishes that Matilda has a firm understanding well beyond what is expected regarding multiplication, reading, and writing for someone of her age. We also meet the lovely Miss Honey, of course, the charming teacher in charge of Matilda and her classmates. We see her interact with her students on the first day of class, really Matilda, as well as how enthralled she is by the magic of Matilda's mind. But of course, from the chapters, we are warned of a dangerous presence on the horizon. It's Miss Trunchbull. While we have not yet met her face-to-face, Miss Honey's descriptions and instructions to her pupils make it clear that Miss Trunchbull's is a force not to be trifled with. With that roadmap in mind, let's start with our short recap into Chapter 7, Miss Honey, before we take a detailed dorky dive into the first chapter of this episode. One of the first things we should do is enter the mind of Matilda and think about what the first day of school would have looked like for her. Looking at our first big quote here, most children begin primary school at five or even just before, but Matilda's parents, who weren't very concerned one way or another about their daughter's education, had forgotten to make the proper arrangements in advance. Now, Flo, since this is your area of expertise, can you hit us up with any facts or anything in this arena? Is she on time? Is she late? What's kind of expected here? I mean, Matilda is always right on time because she is ready for school, (laughs) but her parents are definitely behind the game in this. I know that when we first had our daughter, we had already been looking at schools before she was born. I'm sure, Will, you guys had a similar Mm -hmm. experience with your little one. Totally. Um, So, yeah, I actually run a lot of admissions for kindergarten for my own school, and our parents come Mm -hmm. in ready to go, ready to bribe us with whatever, and just ready to get their kids the best education. The Wormwoods obviously did not have that same pressure 
to get Matilda into the best school or any school, in fact. So yeah, Matilda is definitely behind in this, but I'm pretty sure she's going to be able to keep up academically. <laughs> That's right. Will, what, if anything, did you have to deal with when Charlie was entering pre-K? Sounds like Flo had the same experience. But, you know, even pre-K is like childcare, daycare. That's all like an intense competition, for lack of a better word. Like you have to get on lists and all that stuff. And so you you start looking early. Um, you start looking early for uh, for all the pre-K and, and like even like the, 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 the more formal daycare, like and, and actual like Montessori schools and things like that. You have to do all of your, all of your research way ahead of time. And so when it comes to school, it's pretty much the same deal. For one of our daycares that we looked at, we actually had to bring in a ultrasound to get onto the wait list. Oh, so we did that at six weeks pregnant. We brought in our ultrasound and got Charlotte on a wait oh list. <laughs> that's LA for you. That's that's more intense than what we did. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeez. It's wild out there. So as a non-mother, wowie, that's startling. So... Seemingly like the Wormwoods and certainly not at all like you two <laughs> who are totally on top of your parenting game. And when that doesn't happen, certain people like Matilda, extra special or not, can fall through the cracks. Flo, you made a point about siblings because we know or expect that Matilda's older brother, Michael, to be at Crunchham Hall or the Wormwoods would have had to deal with this to some extent before with him, right? Yeah, it was really surprising to me on this reread that they would forget to send Matilda to school because Michael is five years older and definitely in school. And so it just seems like they would have already figured out all this paperwork and how school happens and starts and then they just forgot that they had Matilda or how old she was, which actually my students brought up that Maybe they don't celebrate her birthday oh. and they forgot how old she yeah. was. Yeah. Womp womp. The kids were really into that in my class that they forgot her birthday. Hmm. Very interesting. I don't remember that being discussed anywhere. It's brought up in the movie. In the movie, Mr. Wormwood asks her, like, are you, aren't you four? Like, you're too young to be going. And she's like, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We're not sure if she has a recognized birthday, but we do know that her parents do recognize that somewhere along the way, the ball has been dropped. Pivoting now to the school, what does Matilda's school even look like? And let's talk about Dahl's relationship to school and what Crunchum Hall means here. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about a Tony the Tiger crunchy cereal? I think not, right? Don't think so, yeah. And this is, Crunchum Hall is something that I think critics of the books like to point out as, oh, it's so silly, it's called Crunchum Hall. This is where they like you know, mash the kids into the dirt and, and break them down. And it's just so obvious because it's called Crunchum Hall, right? But but yeah, the 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 name is even if it's obvious, it's it's still it's still evocative, which is what we like about Roald Dahl so, so much of the time, right? His names, his his descriptions are just so evocative, and it tells you right off the bat what you should expect. And it's really a callback to his own experiences with the schooling system in England. Remember, right. Dahl was born or grew up for a while in Norway and moved to England for boarding school, which horrified him and his mother, both um, both the fact that he had to go away and the fact that it was just this punitive place where 
kids were beaten regularly as as a way to drill into them the value of of obedience basically now Flo, that's no longer the standard correct (laughs) yeah that is definitely correct in fact um when i was reading a later chapter where miss trunchbull says that she wishes she could still hit kids my students were Uh a very confused as to what she meant by that so i had to explain corporal punishment And it was very shocking to them. So, yeah, no, I do not hit my students. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. One of Dahl's, uh, you know, for his one of his formative experiences was really experiences with teachers caning him and mm-hmm. other students. And you read about it in his biographies. There are these teachers who take distinct pride in it being able to cane a student on the same spot multiple times. They're just accurate. And so it only leaves one, like mark on them but they can hit them there like 10 times with a with a switch or a cane uh in a row and that's the kind of schooling that doll was used to and and you see it in here his his teachers are are at least mistrunchable it's they're terrifying well you can see and to make this hopefully more whimsical since that's no longer the tradition in school that i know argus filch and trunchum may like these methods but they won't be tolerated in mrs miss honey's classroom and so for crunchum hall that seems to be the design of it and my pet headcanon theory that hopefully Mm -hmm. changes this super dark nature of this school into a sort of testing school to see if kids are witches and wizards doll wrote that this school was a bleak brick building that housed about 250 students age five to just under 12 years old making them ripe and ready to get their hogwarts letter so that's presumably kindergarten to sixth grade right and there are 18 kids in matilda's class Hello. do you want to drop a nugget about class size here sure yeah 18 is actually a wonderful class size for kindergarten um in my school i have 15 students in first grade with an assistant part-time, but 18 is really, really nice. Here in California, where I teach, our class size for public school is 20 to 1, so Matilda is, like, living it pretty good with 18 kids, and I'm thinking there's two sections per grade if the numbers add up, and so what I'm really interested to know is what the other kindergarten class is like, and if they wish they had Miss Honey, or if Miss Honey's teaching partner is just the same, or worse, or in Miss Trunchbull's pocket. (laughs) and because we're super geeky when you say the numbers add upright can you break that down for us a little bit how did you reach that conclusion well usually numbers don't get much bigger as grades go higher especially if you're starting with 18 so for us kindergarten through second grade it's 15 kids per class and then as you go up it only goes up to 22 or 23 until fifth grade so if you do 18 times 2 that's 36 kids per grade times about six if there's six grades or seven depending on how we're thinking that they're doing their leveling you get to about 250 which is what Roald Dahl tells us in the book and what a perfect transition to talk about this multiplication lesson where we learn quite quickly how talented Matilda is she gets all the way up to two times 12 before things really start to jump off in Miss Honey's mind regarding Matilda's natural talents and what may be discoverable And when it comes to this multiplication lesson, Matilda already knows her two times two table and binds Miss Honey in a spell reciting it. As Matilda gets all the way up to what is two times 16, Miss Honey says, stop. 
And the description in the book reads, she had been listening slightly spellbound to this smooth recital. And now Miss Honey said, how far can you go? And that is lovely. So let's break this down. I was really surprised on a reread thinking, what are these kindergartners doing learning multiplication? It reminded me a little bit of Men in Black, where Will Smith's character knows something is up with that cutout of that cute little girl who was carrying insanely advanced uh, math lesson textbooks <laughs> with her, just surrounded by aliens working out. And Will Smith's character knows something's up with that tiny little girl. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> An appropriate first day lesson for kindergarten. Well, our kindergartners go half day for two weeks just to acclimate mm. to school. So a f good first day lesson is what's your name? How do you spell it? Who are your classmates? What do they look like? How do you line up? How do you ask to go to the bathroom? That's about it. <laughs> So I was surprised and did some extra research, and according to this timely uh, UK news article, the Minister of State for Schools, Nick Gibb, if I'm pronouncing his name right, recently stated, all pupils in England should recall their multiplication tables up to 12 times 12 by the end of year four, when children turn nine. So Matilda is leaps and bounds beyond what she should do, and Miss Honey is kind of testing the students, arguably beyond what they should be able to perform. Now, Flo, you brought up multiplication, root memorization is a thing of the past. Is that right? And Will, I see you're nodding your head yes, so let's get into <laughs> why a little bit yeah, more. I want to let Flo jump in here, but I nodded when you when you said rote memorization because at the time, um, basically rote mem memorization would have been the name of the game. Both schools in America and Britain at this time whenever this time is, but thinking about when Roald Dahl was in school, uh, especially, it was it was really just memorizing facts. It was, and they, they were having students, they probably would have had students okay. recite these facts over and over again, write them on, you know, the blackboard or things like that. And it was really drilling, drilling these kinds of facts into a student's heads without much creativity or, or variance. Yeah, I totally agree. Um... We don't really make kids memorize multiplication facts anymore, definitely not in K1 or 2. And even after that, it's more about how numbers work than about memorizing actual facts. Actually, while you guys were talking, I pulled up the Common Core standards for kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> That's the teacher right here, making sure nice. that we're hitting the standard. There we go. So all that kindergartners in most of the United States, any state that's adopted the Common Core standards, which is most of them, would have to do in terms of math would be adding and subtracting within 10 using objects or drawings and fluently adding and subtracting within five counting to 100 by ones and tens and that's about it for counting all right all right <laughs> so multiplying is not a not thing that it. we do in k or one okay. <laughs> right and so i remember reading when i was young and even though i'm proud of who i am i'm still jealous of matilda's sweet sweet skills <laughs> yeah matilda simply says i've always said to myself that if a little pocket calculator can do it why shouldn't i like, yo, Matilda, you've always said that to yourself all five years long. You've been saying that to yourself? Her whole life. Yeah. Just 
Although I couldn't agree with Miss Honey more when she says, why not indeed? The brain is an amazing thing. Now, Flo, have you ever run across a student like this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I see extraordinary kids every day in different ways. Some kids are really gifted at Foursquare or at coloring or at just making sure that their teacher is okay Mm. on that day, which we're not always okay. Check on us, please. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I actually did used to work at a school for the gifted when I lived in Maryland. So Mm. I was around gifted kindergartners every single day. I had seven of them in my care and they could read and multiply and speak Spanish and played chess, um, just like I'm sure Matilda would have loved to do. Play chess, that's pretty cool. It was pretty, actually, I've got a chess player in my class this year too. He does competitions. (laughs) What I usually find is that kids that are gifted in one arena usually are lacking in another. And usually that comes up socially. And so it's just really important to remember that kids are kids and they all need love and care and to be treated like kids and not like little adults. So no matter how extraordinary Matilda is, Miss Honey still has to treat her like every other student in the class in terms of she's five and she needs what five-year-olds need, which is hugs and books and singing. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be talking about one of your hottest takes. And I love this one, even though I get burned by it a little bit. Now, before we engage in that character study, there's maybe two things I wanted to touch on. The first of which is whether or not there was a moment for you to when you got to say a teacher's first name, especially after you graduated. Was this a thing in your school? Was teacher's first names taboo? Yeah, yeah we didn't do that. Like it was always, you know, Miss Steinman or yeah, it was, it was never their first name, even if we would know their first name because we would see it on report cards or staff lists or something like that we never call them by their first name and i've never had a teacher before college say to me oh call me joe or okay like that. gotcha yeah. so it was that which must not be spoken very much like me how about for you flo so i had a little bit of a different experience i actually went to french american school for the first three years so first second and third grade And we actually called our teachers by their first name. That was just the standard there, which was really weird Mm -hmm. because French people are usually very formal. So I didn't really get it. (laughs) But then I switched to public school in fourth grade. And there, yeah, I was always, you know, Mr. Pachetti or Miss Powell or whatever it was. And my students do know my Mm -hmm. first name. They are not afraid to say it. They know, like, they'll come up and be like, oh, I know that your first initial is F because your name is Flo. And so they get that. But they they call me Mrs. Siegel. (laughs) For my school, it was very much a taboo. You wouldn't say it even if you knew it. And of course, we all knew it. But if you came back to school after graduating and rekindled with a teacher, which some of us do, you might be able to say it. Now, I had absolutely phenomenal teachers growing up for the most part, except for a small, notorious few. And for a little moment of rebellion worthy of Matilda, not quite so much, but I guess it was as far as I could go, there was a teacher who was the absolute bane of my existence and will remain nameless. When I returned to visit some of my all-time favorite educators and saw this teacher walking in the hall, I totally called the teacher by their first name as soon as I saw them because I knew I could. And it was such an English passive-aggressive burn. 
but I'm proud of what happened there. <laughs> That's such a Ravenclaw way to burn somebody. <laughs> so let's see. Thinking about these relationships that Matilda experiences, um, Miss Honey learning how M- Matilda self-taught herself reading with Mrs. Phelps' help, how might that give us insight into Dahl's views of his role as an author of children's stories? Yeah, I, I think this actually goes harkens back a little bit to what we said earlier about his his education about how it was punitive and probably pretty boring in terms of what he actually learned in the classroom he would have saw seen he would have seen both teachers and librarians as kind of enablers uh, in, in in their best sense basically if 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 you could have teachers or librarians who encouraged kids to read who encouraged kids uh to be creative that's the kind of teacher or librarian that Roald Dahl really liked on the other hand he also writes about very obviously in this book and and others about teachers who who don't do that who do the exact opposite who are overly controlling and punitive and it just really is not a good learning environment and he makes that very clear and i think he uh, that that dichotomy really you can see that in in a lot of his works but especially matilda uh, with miss honey and miss trunchbull here i really like and full-heartedly agree with doll here with his rule that humor is required and certainly needed in children's books quote don't you think that all children's books ought to have funny bits in them miss honey asked i do matilda said children are not so serious as grown-ups and they love to laugh and to me, this is beautiful and sad because, hi, uh, I'm an adult and I love to laugh and I plan on remaining that way until the day I die, loving whimsy and fandom. And I wonder about generational differences on this. And so, you know, if you want to light up a lightsaber, go and flip in, do it. And I argue um, now that we've been doing some Clone Wars episodes in tandem to our Matilda offerings, one of the main reasons why Dolls books, other books, uh, Star Wars, etc. are so popular despite how dark they are is because of these moments of levity like Han and 3CPO and R2-D2 beeping and booping stand out in particular mm-hmm. just like Matilda's moments of levity. It's these moments of levity that help make certain fandoms much more successful and why we collect or create and share these stories and merchandise and toys with our own kids, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Just a touch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I think it is kind of a generational thing, Um, and I don't know when it happened exactly, but... Uh, I've seen a lot of people kind of take on what's the quote? Um, when I was a child, I loved childish things. When I um, and it is from First Corinthians thirteen, eleven, uh, and according to the New International Version, it says, yeah. "When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me." Just speaking on behalf of myself and Flo, that don't apply to us much. No. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I, I think we've really, maybe it's our, our generation, maybe the one above ours, but we've really taken that idea that children do childish things. And, and then when you grow up, you just leave all that behind. We've kind of left that by the wayside. We don't really see kids the same way. We don't really see adults the same way. And 
frankly, I think we're better off for it. But yeah. Yeah. I do want to say that sharing my fandom is the best thing I do with my daughter. Um, I'm currently recording wearing a golden snitch necklace with a Daenerys pop figure right next to me. Oh, yeah. Um, and my daughter has a Harry Potter closet playroom and Hermione is on her walls. And I'm just so proud to share that with her. And it feels like a great bonding time to have that childish thing together. So now is a great time for us to take that delicious dorky dive into one of the most well-known and beloved teachers in children's literature, and that's Miss Honey. Let's go into our detailed dorky dive about Miss Honey. And the first thing that we can note about Miss Honey is that uh, we don't, like a lot of the other characters, we don't learn her first name at first, but it, this this introduction is not the kind of uh, abrasive, uh, unfriendly description that we get for some others. But instead, we get a description that definitely seems like it's intended to flatter her. But as we will get into right now, it's it's kind of this idealized description of what a lovely, uh, a physically lovely woman should look like. So for the first quote that is arguably problematic, Dahl wrote, She had a lovely pale oval Madonna face with blue eyes and her hair was light brown. Her body was so slim and fragile, one got the feeling that if she fell over, she would smash into a thousand pieces like a porcelain figure. So let's break those two sentences down. Taking first as the artist exploring the artistic expression here, this popularized idea of the Madonna, a woman who is not engaged in sex, a virginal kind of woman to be looked at from afar, but not touched or known. And that is artistically resonant of sometimes motherhood, this private, intimate bond. And yet there is sometimes ownership in this Madonna iconography that is problematic. Yeah, I mean, when I first read this, it upset me a little bit because there's such a vision of how primary school teachers should look and should act. And we're held to a very high standard of propriety that's not attainable in any sense. And also the fact that well, the fact that she's a woman <laughs> is both realistic and problematic that we don't have a lot of male teachers in the primary grades and we're hired a lot of times based on how we look, how we, I mean, I'm talking to you right now. I am quite pale. I also have dirty blonde slash brown hair. <laughs> I don't know about the lovely Madonna face, but I'll take it. <laughs> But when we see people come through for interviews for jobs, it's a lot about what they look like and how they look like the administration a lot of the time. And that's a problem for sure, because our students don't all look like me and therefore all of our teachers shouldn't look like me. I remember reading this as a young, impressionable girl feeling like this wasn't admirable or supposed to be admirable, like this fragile, thin woman but that it was somehow idealized, which was very confusing for me. 
And we'll talk about this a little bit later when we get to know Miss Honey and her life circumstances a little bit more. So even though this is a deep dive, I do feel a little bit disingenuous since there are some things like when we do a quote unquote deep dive with Miss Trunchbull next week. There are some things with these heavy hitting characters that we're saving until the chapters in which certain things come up. So one of the things that we'll be talking about more when we enter her home, her lovely little cottage, is how World War II is affecting Miss Honey. And we talked a little bit about how it might be affecting the Wormwoods in earlier episodes. With Miss Honey, her access to having economic power has been dwindled to the point where this physical appearance of Miss Honey is actually unattractive and unhealthy because it seems like she's actually somewhat emaciated, which is the fancy word for her not getting enough to eat. Am I right about this, guys? Yeah, 100%. I had the same experience as you on first read. Oh, she's so pretty and she's so tiny and she must be so cute and sweet. And then as we learn later, like you just said, she's struggling like a lot of teachers are nowadays to make ends meet. I will say if any of you felt frustrated when reading this or reading other female protagonists, characters. I recently had the benefit of watching Toy Story 4, so earmuffs on for anyone who hasn't seen it yet for about 20 seconds. They do an excellent job of flipping this delicate female script when it comes to the character slash love interest of Woody, and that's Miss Bo Peep, the quote-unquote porcelain doll who has the three sheep. And I really enjoyed what was done with her character in this movie. Uh, They very much inverted the trope in a nice way about delicate femininity and gives a shout out to the war poster, Yes We Can. So if you're ready for a new take on quote unquote gorgeous delicate women, please check out Toy Story 4 and hit us up via Twitter or Instagram to let us know what you think. Switching gears to the classroom supply perspective, this is something I see crop up in the news and in and community drives from time to time. Flo, I'd love to learn a little bit more from you about what the reality is in the classroom when it comes to supplies. And of course, we can't talk about everyone here Um, But access to school supplies and especially textbooks that accurately represent the melting pot that is America for our American listeners um, and its history is not always a guarantee. So let alone the classroom supplies issues that exist outside of America and certainly Miss Honey's classroom in the UK following World War II. For example, Miss Honey says she hopes everyone has brought their own pencils. Flo, break us down a little bit the situation. Yeah, you're right on it. So currently in my school, I work at a very wealthy private school in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. And I'm very lucky. I have a huge classroom budget, so I don't have to go out of pocket anymore. However, exactly what you were saying, our social studies textbooks, for example, still have George H.W. Bush as the president 
which oh. is very, very outdated. It's crazy. Wild. I think things have happened. Yeah. I mean, a couple yeah. things, not much, but a couple. So I actually don't use the textbook anymore. <laughs> I pull from various other books and picture books to get the lessons across. So you're Severus Snape. Correct. Yeah, I just do my own thing. Cool. <laughs> I, I just go rogue. Which, funny enough, Rogue is the name they gave Snape in the oh, French version. Oh, cool. So that's a little geeky dive for you. <laughs> oh, I feel like that's kind of like the Germans watching Star Wars. And they're like, no, Vader means father. Like, Snape is a rogue. Like, duh. Right. They're like, we yeah. called this. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, but previously, actually, even currently at my current school we still have parents who have to bring in a lot of things not as much as in my previous schools and my previous school parents had to bring in kleenex and clorox wipes and every single pencil that we had was bought by them and my classroom budget for the entire year for 15 students was 250 dollars um which is preposterous you can't buy anything on that that gets spent in the first two seconds of buying binders for 15 kids so a lot of it came out of pocket and teachers can only write off up to $500 off of their taxes for that. So, And that's by law, right? That's what we're capped at? Yes, that is correct. So, and that's all, I want to state that's all in private schools. I've only ever worked in private schools. Public schools, it's a million times worse in a lot of cases. Since we've come to this podcast with our minds and books open, what can parents, kids, the community, regardless of whether or not you have a family member directly involved in the education system right now, we all benefit from an educated society. So what can we do perhaps to help teachers get better access to materials that may be a way to break down barriers? Yeah, definitely. Well, something that you can do to help teachers every day is just support the teachers that you know emotionally. Teaching has one of the highest turnovers because it's emotionally draining. Most teachers quit within the first five years of the profession. It's a very, very hard job. We are with these kids longer than their parents are. We feel for them very deeply. We have nightmares about them. We go to their baseball games. We do everything with them. So just support the teachers in your lives any way that you can. Bring them coffee. (laughs) The other really important way is just checking out if different teachers in your area have wish lists for their classroom. A lot of them Mm -hmm. will or GoFundMe pages or there's a variety of other websites that teachers use. And if you can donate anything, even just a dollar, a dollar can buy the book of the month on the Scholastic website, and that can provide a child who may not have a book with a book, which is just amazing. And the other thing I wanted to mention is if you've got a special talent or anything special that you want to share, go to your local school and see if you can teach a small class or go into a teacher's room and teach, teach whatever. We've got parents coming in all the time. We actually have a parent coming in this week to teach about space because he's an engineer at JPL. I work right next to Caltech. So so we get a lot of scientists who come and teach my students. We have pieces of the Mars rover come into my classroom, architects, artists, people who come in to teach us about different holidays, Nauru's, Persian New Year, Lunar New Year. I often teach about Hanukkah (laughs) and just anything that you can share with teachers. If it's just your time, if you can't make a financial donation, go do that. It's really helpful. Will, since you're a parent, is there anything you'd add to the list? I don't think so. That, That was, I think, a comprehensive 
list and what really I, I don't know what actually really hits me about that description is that Flo's talking about kind of this sense of community and when you look at this book and Miss Honey as a teacher you get this very sense that this woman's alone both in both at school and mm -hmm. in her cottage she doesn't really have anybody until uh, until Matilda comes along and that really illustrates that that's a very stark difference when when you contrast what Flo just talked about with the situation that Miss Honey is in Absolutely. And that's what's bittersweet about that this is one of the first things we get to know about her through Matilda's eyes is that Miss Honey was a mild and quiet person who never raised her voice and was seldom seen to smile. But there is no doubt she possessed that rare gift for being adored by every small child under her care. So I think now is a good place as ever now that we understand some of the ways to help teachers to talk about some of the some of the problematic aspects about Miss Honey and to lift our spirits back up after some of those hot takes that we're about to get to things to flow about the good things Miss Honey brings to the table. I said in the last Matilda episode that I'd stake my reputation <laughs> on Miss Honey being one of the best teachers hands down, but just because that may be the case for me or for you, dear listener, doesn't mean that we can or should ignore her problematic areas. And Flo has one of the best spiciest and I would say accurate takes. So why don't we start as hot as possible to get folks riled up before we cool them down? <laughs> So I want to start off with the fact that I became a teacher largely because I love Miss Honey. So in my first read of Matilda, she was iconic and I adore her and I still adore her. I want to make that clear. Caveat, caveat. <laughs> in rereading this chapter, I have to ask, is Miss Honey actually a good teacher or is she phoning it in slash doesn't actually care about teaching. <laughs> Boom. There it is, folks. Yeah. Yep. So the first <laughs> thing I want to touch on, which I don't think you and I actually talked about, Sarah, before, was the way that the illustrator depicts Miss Honey. I was quite shocked when I looked at the illustrations. So just picture this. I'm going into my classroom. I usually wear some sort of like stretchy jean <laughs> because I'm on the floor half the time with my students usually a t-shirt, sometimes with the Hogwarts logo on it, a cardigan, my hair's in a ponytail because I'm not over here to get lice, and <laughs> some like tennis <laughs> shoes or comfy flats. <laughs> now, we look at Miss Honey in the way she's depicted in the pictures. This lady is wearing a pencil skirt to teach. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I've never worn a pencil skirt, but that's yeah. when I was teaching fourth grade. Wearing a pencil skirt to teach kindergarten is insane the desks i mean it's just crazy the desks are so low the chairs are so tiny the floor is like right there it's just crazy so you do not wear a pencil skirt to go teach kindergarten also let's talk about her teeny tiny purse that is on her desk obviously she doesn't have a laptop that's not the time that matilda's living in but she doesn't have a plan book she doesn't have books she's not taking any work home what what is in that purse? Is it just like her non-existent food? I'm just oh, very confused. No. I laughed and then I felt really bad. <laughs> I mean, I also feel really bad, but what is in there? Like her house keys? What are you bringing to school, Miss Honey? So that takes us into what actually is happening inside the classroom. 
Miss Honey does not have a plan book. She shows up to school rather unprepared. Now, we know that we are catching not exactly the beginning of the school day for Matilda. We know that Miss Honey has already figured out everyone's name. We assume she's assigned them desks. She's handing out workbooks. She's getting ready to go. And then she starts to quiz the kids. <laughs> and that's where it gets really problematic. Like I was sharing earlier, the first day is not a day for assessing. It is a day mm -hmm. for community building. It's a day for introducing yourself, introducing classroom norms, <laughs> routines. <love> and Miss <laughs> Honey, bless her heart, just comes in so hot with Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. You forget that she has 17 other kids looking at her expectantly because all of her attention is on Matilda to the point where I'm sure the other kids were either a goofing off or extremely distraught right. that their teacher didn't care at all about them. Lavender was a bit jealous. And that's what's happening here. Totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah, Lavender was really rattled. I'm sure a lot of the quieter kids were also equally upset, even though they all rushed to Miss Honey's defense after the limerick. We see Miss Honey just immediately ask, who can do multiplication? And as soon as Matilda raises her hand, she's like, well, bam, I'm focused on you. <laughs> Only you. That's it. Also, who can read? Oh, you can, Matilda? Great. Yeah. Let me ignore the fact that Lavender knows a great sight word, I. And she only focuses on Matilda, again, making all the other kids feel bad. Then we, we get into the spelling. We get into a huge list of books. Like, Miss mm -hmm. Honey must have been going on for, I don't know, 20 minutes with just Matilda? Like, they were at a coffee shop? I don't know. I'm just here to say, Miss Honey... I think you need to come observe my classroom because <laughs> what you're doing is problematic. And I, I also want to put it out there. She was very young. She was, the, the book says, I think she was 23. So she can't have been teaching more than right around those four or five years where teachers usually drop out. She was probably exhausted, under supported, didn't have a community like Will was saying, probably running on fumes. So I understand, but still, Miss Honey, you have 18 individuals in your classroom that all need your attention. So you need to move on. I mean, one thing that I one thing that I wonder is a lot of the stuff that you've talked about. I wonder what kind of training that she had. Yep. I I, I, I know that this book touches briefly later on uh, on what she did before becoming a teacher, kind of in passing. But like, yeah. Uh, it's it's not clear to me if she got any of the kind of the the wisdom that you talked about in terms of how to how, how to import yourself in the in a, in a classroom with 18 five-year-olds you know no matter how she might have possessed that rare gift is not something that she clearly demonstrates here yeah i totally agree and i thought about that too actually it's clear that miss honey does have a gift the kids love her i'm sure she's a natural born teacher which to me, teaching is something that you're born into. It's mm. what I've wanted to do since I was six years old. I've never wanted to do anything else, really. But like you said, she probably came with very little training. And unfortunately, that still happens today. We throw our least prepared teachers into the hardest classroom situations with our most needy children. And that is unacceptable to me. We should be putting our very best teachers in there. And unfortunately... This class got Miss Honey, who is 
unfortunately or fortunately, I suppose, however you look at it, but they got an inexperienced teacher. And that's unfortunate for Matilda, who would really benefit from somebody who was more experienced. And it's not like the headmistress is going to do anything to fix the situation. Oh, yeah. She's not putting money into professional development. She's not here for that. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, never will she ever. So in what other ways may be problematic in how Miss Honey engages in her first lesson? One of the things is she begins the class lesson with a very dire, terrifying warning about Miss Trunchbull. So what do we think about that kind of warning? And do we have that quote by chance? To the actual quote, uh, (laughs) Miss Honey says, Now, this is the very first day of school for each one of you. It is the beginning of at least 11 long years of schooling that all of you are going to have to go through. And six of those years will be spent right here at Crunchum Hall, where, as you know, your headmistress is Miss Trunchbull. Let me, for your own good, tell you something about Miss Trunchbull. She insists upon strict discipline throughout the school, and if you take my advice, you will do your very best to behave yourselves in her presence. Never argue with her. Never answer her back. Always do as she says. If you get on the wrong side of Miss Trunchbull, she can liquidize you like a carrot in a kitchen blender. It's nothing to laugh about, Lavender. Take that grin off your face. All of you will be wise to remember that Miss Trunchbull deals very, very severely with anyone who gets out of line in this school. Have you got the message? Yes, Miss Honey, they chirped. So is this the best message to be giving impressionable kids, especially during one of their first encounters with a new teacher? A little. (laughs) The thing is that a little bit of fear is good. For example, Mm. my students today had a substitute teacher And I told them they had to be on their very, very best behavior because that's what represents themselves best and their school best and our class the best. However, I did not tell them they would be liquefied like carrots. (laughs) That seems extreme. What I do want to mention, too, is not only is Miss Honey probably scaring her students into submission, which is usually not the best way to do it, especially on the very first day. You want to build some rapport, some community before you're scaring yeah some trust before you break it all down yeah 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 (laughs) yeah Yeah, just a little bit before you really bring down the hammer as it as it will be Mm -hmm. later she's also taking a really big risk by speaking so ill of the administration that's hiring her usually speaking ill of your administration is really tough you never know who's listening and who might report back yeah i think miss honey's taking a big risk here (laughs) i i i don't think i would do this in my first day or my hundredth day but i mean she certainly is warning them and it does work a little bit so what i find interesting there's a portion in the book a few chapters from now where Matilda learns that pretty much no one, not the parents, not the teachers, not the students, will talk one another about Miss Trunchbull. So apparently these kind of conversations about who Miss Trunchbull actually is to these children and to the parents doesn't really happen. It's kind of like an urban living myth walking through Crunchum Halls, but she's there. And so I do give Miss Honey the credit for having the bravery to stick her neck out there. Whether it was the right call to make, I'm not sure, but I am sure glad she made it for purposes of moving the plot forward. Yeah, I will say, I mean, Miss Honey is being really brave in this moment. 
I don't know if it's stupidity or bravery, but it reads like bravery. And so I appreciate that. I wish she would have said just a little extra line about how she's there to make sure they're taken care of and how she'll be there for them. I think that would have really reassured the kids a lot, but... She was too busy quizzing Matilda, so. <laughs> One more thing about Miss Honey that we've touched on a little bit is she she kind of probably is a product of the system to some extent, right, Flo? In terms of the lack yeah, of definitely. training and also what she's expected to do. And we've really, we've talked about this a little bit, but her, her personality and her instinct is, is what Dahl really emphasizes here in terms of her excellent characteristics as a teacher. And on page 67 of the book, Dahl writes that she seemed to understand totally the bewilderment and fear that so often overwhelms young children who for the first time in their lives are herded into a classroom and told to obey orders. To me, this is what being a teacher is. This is innate. It can't it can't really be taught. You either have it or you don't. Honestly, <laughs> sorry for all the teachers who are out there. Our number one role is to make sure that students feel safe at school and feel happy to be there. And Miss Honey does do that. She understands that kids are scared. It's their first day. She's scaring them a little bit extra, but she's there as a friendly face to remind them that this is the place where they should be. They're with their peers. This is a safe room. And I know in the movie, we see her really mm -hmm. making that a priority. We see all the art on the walls that she has to hide when the trench bowl comes in. But she's in there making a little oasis for her students. And we have to give her tons of credit for that. Absolutely. In terms of... Uh, Miss Honey's uh, instinct and her good traits. I think the only other thing that I would say is that Dahl, as much as he kind of gets into the physical stereotypes that are a little problematic, it's pretty clear, at least in my reads, both when I was a kid and now, that when Dahl gives her these characteristics, these instincts, and her ability to kind of inspire children, that's one of the biggest compliments that he pays to really any of his characters. Yeah, and I do want to bring up a quote that we had touched on earlier, where she asks Matilda, mm -hmm. how yeah. far can you go? And that is such a beautiful thing that she does. She meets Matilda where she is, she doesn't ask her to dumb herself down or to be anything other than what she is exactly at this moment. And she just encourages her to know you can go further than this. And how far can we go together? How far can this go? And that's what we aim to do. We aim to teach our kids where they are, teach them exactly how they are, teach them to their modality, whether that be kinesthetic or visual or auditory, just to make sure that they understand the material that they need in the way that they need to receive it right there. And that's what's so hard about teaching. It's not one lesson plan. It's 15 or 18 or 23 lesson plans that are individualized and ready for each kid. And I think that's a great transition to end our three-part classes now in session theme. So as we talk about Miss Honey and as we talk in part one, we'll get to learn more about how she adapts and evolves to better serve her students in light of Matilda's extraordinary skills so that Miss Honey, in her mind at least, serves all 18 of her students, even though they're at very different capability levels. Just to briefly return to what Flo said about the modalities of teaching and 
one thing that we want to be able to engage on is, you know, a lot of us like to listen to audiobooks, a lot of uh, us listen to podcasts, and we learn really well that way. And in order to have parents and kids who learn that way engaged, um, you know, we have this potential launching point to kick off uh, BGS on separate tracks, both with a, a, a track for for adults to talk about the fandoms um, and the literature or entertainment that we love, um, and something for for their kids or or their children uh, in in the classroom setting that is more appropriate for them, and uh, that can potentially spur uh, some great uh, discussion and 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 synthesis of ideas that we're really excited about. In classroom settings, we call this differentiation, making sure everybody gets what they need. There's vocab for it. I love it. So like I said, I am a listener of Bohemian Geek Studies since the beginning, and I love my friends Sarah and Will a ton, and I'm so excited to hear them every time an episode comes out. But I listen to a lot of podcasts in my own classroom with my students about a variety of topics because a lot of them are auditory learners. And it's also just a nice thing to listen to while we're having our relaxation time after lunch. And I immediately notice that around, usually around minute 12, they get a little bit antsy (laughs) during the podcast listen. So I brought this to Sarah and to Will and asked them if it would be possible to make a more BGS Junior track that would be a shorter episode hitting the same chapter that would be hit on BGS for our younger audiences so that they can get what they need at the content level that they need to get it from with the language that they need. And then they can take that back to the adults in their lives and have a literary discussion, a lit circle, if you will, at the dinner table or in the car or wherever it may be that they want to talk about the books that both parties are listening to, um, that they can reach it in their own way. out with a thought to think on one of the things bgs has been thinking on is how we're going to be best serving you dear listener whether you're flying solo have some kids or maybe thinking about kids in the future and we recognize that different audiences need different things and these are some of the things that the bgs team has been thinking on hence our matilda silence for a little bit thank you thank you thank you so very much for your patience during all of this and we're hoping that the clone wards bonus episodes have been alleviating that a little bit for those of you who both like a book and traveling to a galaxy far far away to the extent you have ideas on this as we're thinking about restructuring and breaking off into a purely kids, purely adult podcast, send us any ideas you guys have to bohemiangeekstudies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And for our second thought to think on to close out today's episode, in one of the online communities, Binge Mode shouts that us BGS folks are involved in One of our friends and who is a math teacher, Alex Becker, wrote something really great on encouraging math. And he was kind enough to allow us to use his post. And we're going to use it to be our ending thought to think on. Quote, when you're a kid and a teacher criticizes something about you, it stings. When it's a friend or classmate instead, it hurts. 
when it's apparent, it breaks. Because you know your parents wouldn't lie to you about something like that, right? Maybe a classmate would say something like that just to be mean, but not mom or dad, right? This moment you tell your kid that he or she is bad at something, even if they do try to do so in a charitable or backhandedly encouraging manner, you become right. It's pretty much a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. There's that old expression about, quote, whether you believe you'll succeed or believe you'll fail, you're probably right. And it absolutely applies here. It's especially damning because if you're told that you're bad at something when the concepts are still relatively basic, usually it seems like kids develop this mentally well before reaching algebra when the hardest topics in math are still just multiplication charts and long divisions and maybe fractions and decimals. You'll have no confidence approaching the harder ones to come. You wouldn't tell your kid that they couldn't make a layup and then expect them to start draining threes. So why would you tell him that he can't do multiplication and then expect him to be able to factor polynomials later? By the way, this applies to any children, but it's even more critical with daughters than sons. Lots of people are going to tell your little girl that math is for boys and that she should still do something more artistic or something easier. By the way, artistic is not always easier. I'd rather convert a thousand fractions to decimals and back than try to paint a portrait or play the piano. That girls just aren't cut out to be engineers or doctors or whatever. If her parents tell her she can do it, maybe she will. If her parents are telling her that it's okay to be bad at math, she probably will be. It's just one voice too many telling her to give up. So what should you say when your child is frustrated because they don't understand a worksheet in math? How about, well, this is hard, but I bet if you practice a bit, you'll get the hang of it. Or maybe, I struggled with this too when I was your age, but now it doesn't seem so bad. It gets better. Just not, hey, it's okay. Maybe you're just not good at math. Because whichever of these you will say will probably end up being true. Whether you tell your kids they'll succeed or whether you tell them they'll fail, you're probably right. I want my students to succeed, but most of the battle happens before they ever reach my classroom. Let me build on the foundation you've created rather than having to tear everything down and start from scratch. What a great thought to think on from another real-life teacher. Join us again for our travels to a galaxy far, far away as we break down episode three of Clone Wars that should be dropping within the next day or two. And next week, as we hopefully actually deliver Matilda Mondays on, well, Monday. Until then, keep letting other awesome geeks who love Matilda and Star Wars know about BGS. Wands up and keep those pages turning.